HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. The great state of Wisconsin is home to the only master cheesemaking program outside of Switzerland. Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history at wisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes of Feast Your Ears can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. Big thank you to Wisconsin Cheese for sponsoring today's episode. This is Heritage Radio Network's 10th anniversary. Please join us for our spectacular gala coming up on November 11th at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. That's next week. Get your tickets today www.heritageradionetwork.org slash gala. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. Today's theme, pickle it just a little bit. Aaron Adams and his team at Farm Spirit and Fermenter PDX are on a mission. They're making great food and creating almost no waste, and they're connecting with farmers and producers and keeping it as local as possible, working on fermenting all the things and convincing the Oregon food authorities that fermented foods are okay to make in a restaurant. Oh, and it's all vegan, but that's not really the point. And it's not putting the perfect in the way of the good. I was lucky enough to catch Aaron on the phone last week and talk to him about what's going on in Portland and his view on food. I think there's a lot to learn from him and his team. I'm going to read you a part of their manifesto, which can be found on their website at fermenterpdx.com. Most all of us here have grown up in some sort of punk or hip-hop scene. This may seem silly to note, but we had to ask ourselves, did our younger selves believe in those lyrics we were screaming at the top of our lungs? Did we believe in that world that challenged the status quo? Did we forget when we got older? Nope, we still believe. We may all be flawed humans, but at least we're trying. We're not suggesting coming and eating here is the answer. You gotta go fix some shit on your own. Hello? Hey, is this Aaron? Yes. Hey, it's Harry from Feast Your Ears. Hey, Harry, how are you doing? I'm good, I'm good. 
Well, thanks so much for for taking the time out of your day to chat. Um, you know, this is it's pretty sure. informal. I mean, I you know I want to talk about some of the the stuff that you guys do. Actually, I mean, the music thing was something I did want to touch on. Um, and sure. you know, it's something my wife and I have talked a lot about as we became entrepreneurs in the food space about the fact that yeah. you know we grew up in like the punk DIY like scene. Yeah. Uh, you know, maximum rock and roll, book your own fucking life, like that whole thing. Yeah, yeah. And and sort of how that relates to becoming a food entrepreneur. Um, and you talk about that yeah. in, your, in your mission and manifesto a little bit. Yes, for sure, hundred percent. Yeah. So like music, I mean, like I think that you know, growing up an angsty like you know suburban kid and from like Livermore, California, you know, like we, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of culture and there wasn't a whole lot of cues from like our family about what we should you know care about because we were like latchkey kids and like parents were never home they were constantly working sure my dad was a cop you know and my mom was uh, a housewife and then when my parents got divorced my mom was like really went for a career she started working clothing stores and then like kind of kind of moved her way up until eventually she was like working a pretty decent job working as human resources manager at a big company with no college education and my family's from cuba on my mom's side but we never i don't know i just never think that i got like super like exposed to like a lot of Cuban culture other than like, you know, going every once in a while and, you know, hanging out with like my Tia Chacho and having some, like uh, some good food or whatever. But like, but on the, uh, but you know, we weren't like immersed in the music and the lifestyle of Cubanness and we weren't like, you know, my dad was like, just kind of like a white guy from um, um, San Lorenzo, California. So mm. like he didn't, you know, they like, they didn't have like a lot of a huge cultural identity and anything like that. So I think that we are all seeking one. You know, sure. trying to find like a family and a culture and like, you know, a, a way to dress and a way to talk. And so I started hanging out at Gilman Street, which was a punk club in Berkeley called 94 Gilman. Yeah, and um, yeah, and that was like really it for me. But I, I don't think that I re I was such a nerd and I was so like I was like a fat nerd kid and I, like didn't fit in and. And so the, it was cool, but I don't feel like I let myself be accepted by that group either. And so I, I love punk and I, and I loved all that scene. Like, I don't think I really got into my own until I hung out with some anti-racist skinheads. Yep. And when I, when I, when I kind of hung out with that group of people, it all coalesced because I was like, oh, I love the, you know, I love punk and oi music, which is cool, but I love this reggae music that we're listening to. Like this old sixties reggae is just like unbelievable you know, like some like Derek Morgan and Laurel Aitken and all these guys you're, from like Lee totally, Scratch Perry. And... Yeah, you're speaking my language. I think, I feel like you and yeah. I, like we were living parallel lives. Like you were like yeah. east of, like you were a little bit southeast of like the Bay Area and I was north of the Bay yeah. Area. Like I was exactly the same. I was a fat kid. I, I moved yeah. from north of New York City <laughs> when I was a kid to Northern California. And like, you know, growing up north of New York City in a place that was almost 100% white, like I didn't, I, yeah. knew, I knew I didn't like Dave Matthews and Blues Traveler but I didn't know what the other <laughs> options were. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and like I mean, like my, I remember my first album that I ever got was like a gift from my mom. Uh, it was um, weirdly uh, Bon Jovi, "Slippery When Wet," <laughs> and uh, and I was like really trying to get into it, you know, because the the kid down the street, the older teenage kid who we played Dungeon Dragons with and who we thought was cool as hell, like you know, he loved like Def Leppard and. Uh, all this stuff. So we're also like, you know, really trying to get into it. But it's just like uh, my the, the thing that changed for music for me is my brother started working at the Oakland airport, mm -hmm. loading planes for UPS. And he started hanging out with people from Oakland. And so he started bringing all this different music into the house. So he started right. really getting into hip hop. 
and I was like, oh, that's cool. And then he, and then, um, and then he brought it out some punk stuff. And so then, you know, like I started listening to Lookout Record bands, and I was like, oh, that's cool. And then, and then all of a sudden, you're like, um, and then one day he brought home the two tone story somehow, and I was like, this is fucking it. And I loved, I, I hated simultaneously cheesy ska music, yep. like polka ska, yep. but I loved the traditional shit. And so, and two-tone is not traditional, but it was still punk edgy, like Madness and the specials were my shit. I have Nutty Boy tattooed on my forearm. I mean, like, <laughs> like Madness uh, is like, was I mean, my guy. I, I should send you the photograph of the first tattoo I got when I was 18. It's the, it's yeah. the guy in the suit skanking from the two-tone yeah, totally. cover. It's on my left. Totally. M- Rudy, I think they call That's him. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah I yeah. I got the album cover from the birth of ska from like, like a Derek Morgan album, like, yep. like tattooed on my arm. I mean, like, so I was into it for yeah. sure. Yeah, man. I mean, it's and, um, same for me. Like yeah. I, I started hanging out at the Phoenix theater and like, because it was where all the kids I met when I moved to California were hanging out. And like, yeah. I went to one night, the, the Scottalites and the selector and the special beat played. And I just like, it blew, oh, my, so mind, good. It blew my mind wide open. And I was like, fuck, this is music is this. This is the shit that I yeah, can get into so and fun, hang out so with people energy. and listen to all the time. I'm in. Yeah, and also I got uh, you know, and then uh, there was terrifying aspects of it too. Like the, the, suddenly you're in like a crew. Yep. And suddenly you, you've been jumped into a crew, and then like you're, and I was like not a tough guy. I was just a fat, silly little kid, and and then I'm sitting there getting in fights and stuff like that. I had a, my nickname was Buster, and I was just a <laughs> fucking nerd, you know. But <laughs> but like I but like I dressed, you know, like I, I you know. I tried to dress nice and we, you know, we wear suits and I had a Vespa and I followed, I went to the lifestyle deep. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, so I'm, I'm living this, like this lifestyle, but I was also really still into cooking, you know, and the cooking thing started because I was vegetarian when I was very young. I, I, I went vegetarian very young and I had a, um, um, and so I started making food for myself because my, my mom is like Cuban. And she's like, what the fuck? Like right. no is pork, pork vegan, you, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. And so it's like, you know, um, and they tried their best and everything like that. But, like, I, I really wanted to do it. And because and, and I was a latchkey kid and uh, KQED in San Francisco and watching um, cooking shows. So, Yan Can't Cook was, like, my hero. Yeah. And I watched the Frugal Gourmet before I knew that he was a pedo and, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember one of the best – one of the funniest memories to tie all this together is, like, sitting there at this, like, skinhead house, like, these guys are all, all these like you know criminals, you know these <laughs> tough guys, and and I'm sitting there boots and braces and like you know tight jeans like bleachy jeans and like you know t- you know with a little apron on like trying to make these guys a fancy meal, and they're like don't make a fucking mess in my house, man. What the fuck? And I'm like, dude, I'm trying to make you a nice meal. Fuck you guys. And I, like storm out, you know. Like that's like, one of the best experiences of cooking i ever had <laughs> you know and then like them like having to console me like oh man it's cool come on in we'll eat this you know i'm like oh whatever you don't appreciate me you know <laughs> so like yeah we had we had a good time with uh, uh all that and then, you know but i think that there was a moment where i was just like i need to make a choice about whether i'm gonna go this way or this way and uh so i i was like i'm gonna i'm gonna choose cooking and so weirdly uh i moved to guam huh. and uh I had a buddy of mine from, he's from the Philippines originally, and he was a skinhead kid, Eric Rabara, great guy. Um, and he was moving back to uh, Guam to uh, be with his family. He had moved from PI to uh, 
to uh, Guam. And so I was like, oh, can I come with you? And so they let me stay at their house. And, and I worked at a resort hotel up there, like a Westin. And um, and then I was just like, this sucks. Uh, and a typhoon came through and kind of leveled the island along with it, my job. Mm. So I was like, eh, I think I'm going to take off. So I went down to uh, Florida where I had Cuban family. My grandparents stayed with them and then went to culinary school uh, at Johnson Wales uh, campus in North Miami. And then from there, getting more serious and then you know, moved to New York and or moved to New Jersey more distinctly, but uh, worked in the Upper East Side and tried to do uh, try to learn stuff and just kind of went from there. I don't know. Uh, That's awesome. a lot of talking. <laughs> um, so, so then, so you have been, how long have you then been vegan? Uh, 15 years. Cool. Um, I mean, I think, I think we're in a, an interesting time for, uh, for vegan yeah. and vegetarianism, right? I mean, we're seeing all of yeah. these kind of, you know, uh, I mean, for lack of a, a, a more eloquent way to put it, fake meat uh, products come, yeah. coming out. I mean, when I was in college, I analog analogs. Yeah. I was, I was, <laughs> that vegan. sounds more appetizing. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you put some analogs on the grill. Uh, yeah. Two round analogs and two, uh, long, <laughs> long analogs, tube please. shapes, please. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was, I was mostly vegan in college. I lived with a bunch of kids, uh, a bunch of punk kids who were yeah. like hardcore, you know, who were like hardcore vegans and whatever yeah. and uh, into emo. Yeah. emo Soy and Idoi cookbook on yeah, the, on totally. the shelf. Um, except, yeah. that, except that for them, you know, they were basically eating like bagels and peanut butter and yeah. like morning star, morning star farms veggie burgers and that was kind of yeah it, yeah you know? and like i got interested in cooking and so i started you know i was, I was de facto <laughs> vegan and cooked vegan for a long time and i think yeah. i think we're at a very interesting time for it because i think it's come a long way and i think with the rise yeah. of things like csas and especially what you guys are doing like at farm spirit where you're really taking it to a different place where it's not like oh you're a vegetarian cool you can have a salad yeah, 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 for sure. You know, to really celebrate no, those mean, ingredients and talk about like, you know, and there is no reason why you can't have really fine dining food that's well executed that does celebrate all of these things. Yeah. I don't think that it's I don't know a lot, like what's going on around the country and the world of that so much because I kind of keep my head in the sand a little bit about it because I kind of want to make sure that that we're being pure to what we're doing and yeah. not like uh worry too much about what other folks are doing in that in that respect. I think that when we're talking about like our influences, it's usually just like we're trying to look at like the best restaurants around and see what's going on and then try to blaze our own path. But, you know, in the, the world of veganism and vegetarianism right now, I think that the most popular and biggest thing, like you said, is fake meats. And, and one way it's like, you know, like, Oh yeah. Yay. You know, <laughs> yeah. like, Oh, you know, like, Oh good. You know, but also you're like, when you're talking about like that punk ethic and everything like that, it's like, why are we handing all of our fucking creativity over to major corporations? For sure. You know, like, why don't we fucking make anything ourselves? Yeah. You know, it's like literally you can – I can spend every day of every week for every meal opening every thing I eat and, and heat it up in a pan or whatever. And look, I just cooked, you know? Oh yeah, no, and, I mean, uh, and and what I mean, yeah. I used to get into fights with my with my roommates back then about you know like nobody is trying to make beef taste like a carrot. Right? Yeah, no. So, like, why are no, we going no, no. the other way? And and to me, like, the thing that I always threw back at them was the same thing, right? This sort of, like, punk ethos of, like, well, why why are we trying to stick within the norms? Why are we trying right. to, like, 
continue to live this life where it's like meat based. So for me personally, I'm not vegan. I'm not vegetarian. Yeah. I don't have a I, problem with it. Like, sure, sure, yeah, sure. yeah. No, I, I was just like, but, but yeah. what I've been thinking a lot about for me as yeah. the as the the stuff comes out about Beyond and Impossible Burgers and all this stuff and this idea of like you know these guys are on on a like they're hell bent to like delete the cow as a piece of agriculture. Yeah. As someone who grew mm-hmm. up in the Northeast, but also who grew up in Petaluma, where like the farming yeah. is a big deal and it's a huge economic driver, I'm now at a point where it's like, all right, well, I'm going to try and eat meat only if I know the person it's coming from. And so I'm trying to yeah. buy it direct. It's tough, and though, it's, right? It's super tough. It's super tough. I was just traveling and, and I was like, tra- I was traveling and I was like, all right, well, I'm going to be vegetarian because on the road, but it's hard. Or understanding or whatever, but it seems like it's just constantly going to be a contrarian or like a, a counterculture thing at heart because you know it's difficult to to imagine eating without having meat involved in in our diets but yeah deleting the cow i guess i guess what 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 that means to me is just like stop breeding and raising cows for slaughter um you know because you know which is which is a radical idea but we're, we're because what we're saying is you know like hey you know uh sorry for you know you have the momentum of uh thousands of years of uh, human um history uh the forces of of technology like you know railroading down this track barreling at like this incredible speed with all this weight of history and culture behind it and we're like we're like hey man would you stop you know so <laughs> it's um it's tough i think it's clear to say that that's that it seems to me from and maybe i'm like living in a bubble but it seems like the science and stuff that we see through the the articles i haven't read and i'll honestly say i've never read a fucking study in my entire life but like i've just read digestive studies through articles that say that we eat too much meat and that it has an ecological uh, impact totally um and besides that you know we're saying we're also saying um you know hey you know the way that we raise animals for food is super not cool and it's really fucked up and we need to stop doing it that way so i think from like from the standpoint of like dignity of as a human being um i think that we need to uh, at the very least reassess our 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 relationship with these animals because human beings that are us not the consumer direct but the person who works in in uh, those abattoirs to um to do that job over and over again at the speed and the danger oh, yeah. and everything like that and the psychological impact that it must have. It's like, it's just not very cool to ask that. It's easy to ask that as a consumer. It's easy to ask that as a, like a businessman that's sitting in an office in the air conditioning. who doesn't have to give a fuck about like going down and like slicing throats all day, but yeah. it's pretty fucking heavy, man. And, and I think we take it too lightly. Agreed. And the, as, from the vegan standpoint, I think what the, what we're saying is just like, hey man, it's all good that you like, you know, you raised your cow on a pasture or you raised your cow in a feedlot, but you know they're going to the USDA facility and they're getting their their, their throat sliced yeah. and they're going to get killed. And, and 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 my thing is, is I'm sitting here and I'm like, I live in the world and I understand that this is what's happening, and like I do. The test I always say is like I do care about people more than I care about animals. I just do, like whether that's popular to say or not. But I just be sure. honest. Yeah. You know, if 100%. I walk, if I walk down the street and I see, if I see a dead squirrel on the side of the road, I don't like lament. You know, right. if I see like a cow that's like fucking been hit by a car, I'm like, oh, that's terrible. Yep. If I see a human being lying dead on the side of the road, I'm gonna freak the fuck out, call nine one one, like lose my shit. You know, like vomit. You know, whatever. Right. But I think that 
so, but that doesn't mean that I don't care about animal welfare. It's not a black or black and white thing. Right. And it's, you all, know? it's so, all linked together. I mean, I, I really applaud you guys for the mission and manifesto that you have on your site. Yeah. Um, and, and I love. For Fermenter? Yeah. And, yeah, I, yeah. and I love that you're putting that out there, but also that a big part of it, I mean, you know, it, it's about where you're from and it has the music stuff and, and all of that. But I also yeah. really appreciate that you guys, you know, you recognize that you can't let the quest for the perfect get in the way of the good. And exactly, hundred percent. We do all live 100%. in this world, and so you know, and so I, you know, so my whole thing is like I'm, I try, I'm now really trying very hard to buy things, and it's been true for many years, not just meat. Yeah, I'm doing it a lot more with meat now, even than I had been in the past. But like you know, yeah. I try to support farmers and buy directly yeah. from people that I know as much as I possibly can. And so I'm interested to for understand sure. the way you guys work because you're even going as far as to say we're not going to use tropical products because of how yeah. those things are raised and farmed and processed and how that affects the people in those communities. Yeah, I mean, like, it's, it's fucked up that we have, like, I have, you know, vegans that are like, yeah, man, like, fucking, you know, animal welfare and da 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 You know, I'm going to buy 50 pounds of cashews that come from this place where people are getting paid five cents a day to, like, wade around in toxic chemicals de-hauling cashews, you know? Yeah. And you're like, okay, well, maybe that's not something we should do, you and know? Like, probably I don't know, out like, all the fruit. <laughs> right they're taking yeah, the nut totally and then the fruit and, and you're all, and also like you're like oh i'm I, you know i have a cus i have customers that send me this email all the time like are you guys completely organic and i'm like well we buy from farms that don't use pesticides and they don't use these things but they're not certified organic right a lot of them yep. and, and most of the farms we buy from are certified organic but there's like small farms that just don't bother the certification is expensive or they don't want to deal with it or they think or some people are taking a stand against it because they think that the standard is stupid sure. or whatever and people are and, and i got a kind of not an argument but kind of a discussion with somebody via email where you know they're a vegan guy and it's really important for them to eat all organic and i i pose the question i'm like would you rather buy like a like a container of earthbound organics fucking romaine then go to this place that's not certified organic and buy theirs that's right. local right. they said yes wow. and i'm like you're fucking nuts huh. and you're nuts because i and i don't know about earthbound organics but sure. i've heard rumor that like a lot of those big agro businesses that yeah they're organic like some berry producers and things like that that get mad at me whenever i say something but it's like you know, they use shitty labor. They use tractical slave labor. They people die in their fields, and yeah. fucking they spray. They don't spray conventional fertilizers, but they spray more quote unquote organic ones that are poisoning like the ecosystem. And they huge monocultures of just dead land of like dead growing medium everywhere. And it's like, oh yeah, it's organic. And I'm like, be thoughtful. Yeah. Like, be fucking thoughtful. Totally. Yeah. Hundred percent. So, so, so I want to I want to understand a little bit better what the relationship is between Farm Spirit and Fermenter. Okay, so Fermenter is a is a is a doozy. Um, we opened up Fermenter. Okay, so basically we had Farm Spirit over here on Morrison Street in Portland, and we knew we wanted to expand Farm Spirit and this restaurant around the corner called Roost closed down. And so we said, oh, we're going to take over that space. So I went ahead and took over that space, but we realized the kitchen's kind of small over there. So we kept the old location so that we could use it as a commissary for baking and for doing fermentation and stuff like that. Got it. So we were happily doing that. And then my landlord was like, um, hey, you can't just have like a empty storefront, you know, where you guys are just like working in there and close the pub. 
We want you on a retail front on all these things, right? And I said, that's reasonable. I get that. So we said, let's open up the front of it. So I took the old counter that I used to have for the 14-seat chef counter and chopped it up in little pieces and then rebuilt it. And the, I mean, when I say me, I mean somebody who's actually good at stuff like that. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and so then we have like this little four-seat counter. And then we um, uh, we we did that for a little bit. And then we were like, man, we got to get the rest of the guts of Farm Street out of there. So we did another remodel. And then we were like, you know, we've always been doing fermenting. You know, we found a miso that we forgot about in that storage that was four years old. That's great. Yep. You know, we've always done lactic acid fermentation. We've always made hazelnut yogurt and hazelnut cheeses and stuff like that. We've always done that. But it's been becoming more and more prevalent, and I become more and more obsessed with it. And so I said, guys, let's just call it fermenter and, like, let's just, let's just focus on fermentation since that's what we're basically using this room for now, right? It's like a 600-square-foot space. Yep. Let's just, like, make ferments in here and do all this shit. And then and I said, but we'll open up a lunch thing. But, you know, I really want to do like a bowl that's takeaway, but I also want to do a tasting menu. And so we, we opened up this thing. So the problem is that you got four seats, right, yeah. that you're doing lunch tasting. <laughs> and so then somebody – this is a scenario. Yeah. And I'm going to give you a little bit of news here. When we walk in – a customer walks in and says, hey there, you know, what the, what the hell's going on here? And we're like, Welcome. Do you want to sit down at the counter and have a tasting menu or do you want to have a bowl to go? Or you can have it here. And they're like, oh, I'll just have a bowl for here. Let me sit at the seat. No, no, sir. Sorry. That's for people doing the chef's counter. You can go eat out in the fucking rain, right? (laughs) But you can have it here and give us our bowl back so you don't have to take it. Yeah, just give me the fucking – yeah. And so it's a lot to ask. You know, a few months we're just kind of like, you know, like at first I was like, haha, the restaurant's quirky and weird. And then I was like, oh man, this is quirky and weird. And then like, I'm like, man, this is weird. Right. <laughs> so I got bummed out on it. And so then I ha- I just talked to Scott, um, our CDC, you know, Scott Weingard. Yep. And, uh, and I was just like, you know, man, I don't want to do this anymore. So, so what we're going to do, fermenter's not closing, but what we're going to do is I'm going to get rid of the three course and I'm just going to focus on the fermentation sell fermented products in the front of the store like a deli and then make sandwiches soups bowls salads that kind of stuff and just make it so it's like you come in you're either here to go we got these four seats we got some seats outside you can eat in one of these fucking things or you can like leave and take this whatever and uh and just do what we do well which is like i we so i just built a website for it a couple days ago and it's like we're gonna have big crocs of pickles so we have our you know our dills we got sauerkraut we got ruby kraut we got kimchi we got all the stuff people can buy they can buy hazelnut cheese. They can buy tempeh that we make. They can buy tempeh bacon. They can, you know, cured vegetables, our carrot jerky. We're going to have all this stuff laid out. Hearing it here first. That's awesome. Because uh, I haven't announced breaking, it yet. Breaking news. <laughs> breaking news. So, so that's, the, that's the path. It was like, you know, we don't have a vegan deli here in Portland. And I, and I love the idea of, like, the vegan slaughterhouse over at, uh, um, uh, what's the place called? Um, you got in New York there in L.A. Uh Oh, that e- place at Italy? Uh, no, I can't remember the name. Oh, wait, it is at Italy. Don't I don't they, know. Don't they have the they have the they have the vegetable butcher at Italy? Butcher's daughter is what I was talking about. Oh, butcher's, butcher's daughter. daughter. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, and then they got butcher's son over in yeah. Berkeley, I think, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like those, like something like that, you know, like where we don't have something like that where you can come in and like I want you know like I want you to come in and buy some pickles, and, and here's the whole thing that summarizes that 
it and summarizes farm spirit and what we're calling the farm spirit family now. Being vegan is not fucking enough for your identity, pal. Like, if you have a fucking restaurant that's vegan, you can't just be like, well, I'm vegan and that's what I am, because that's not enough. What you got to do is you just make good food products and you just happen to be a vegan guy. It's like, it's imagine you're from the country of vegan and that, like, you're, you're bringing your wares to, like, sell and, like, you're doing it your style. And in the bland of vegan, they don't use animal products, and so that's what you do. And so then you have to make cool things that are really delicious and yummy, and you can't rest on the laurels that it's fucking vegan. Yep. Like, that's just not enough no man i'm so i'm 100 yeah. i can't i can't wait to come check it out i haven't been in portland in a couple in maybe two years and i'm looking come on out to have my a sandwich. next trip man i uh i can't wait to come check it out i feel like it wouldn't I, be terrible if you came all the way over here and it sucked you're <laughs> like god this sandwich is awful i mean if that if that happened my you know my best friend from childhood lives in portland with his wife and yeah. family so like it i won't you know yeah i mean no offense to you but it like i have other things you to might be coming here for another reason than so, a sandwich yeah, yeah, yeah. i get you um, yeah, but, just but, write I mean, a good Yelp review. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the, these the, guys are assholes. The fermentation thing, I think, is really it, it fascinates me. I mean, I wrote a book about vinegar and vinegar making. Cool. Um, I, you know, I'm way into fermentation. I just before this phone call was tasting some uh, mayatake mushrooms that I foraged a few weeks ago that I have yeah. fermenting right now. Um, I've got so some good. beet kvass going next to that. I like I'm out of tempeh, so like I just was thinking about I gotta get some beans and I gotta make some tempeh um, at home because I love good. tempeh at home. But yeah. but I think that it you know the thing that's so interesting to me. I mean, fermentation has been kind of like becoming more and more you know kind of in you know mm-hmm. more in the forefront um, and definitely like there's yeah. a, there's a hip bent to it. But the thing that I think is so important that I feel like sometimes and you pointed out with your like you can't rest on your just being vegan thing is that fermentation is also ancient, right? Like yeah, it's it is ancient, old. It is <laughs> and it exists everywhere. You know, like it, everywhere. I mean, every single. I mean, if yeah. you read Sander Katz, which I know you have, like yes, you know, every culture has fermented foods because I love Sander Katz. First of all, he's a dreamboat. And um, I'm I'm married to a lady, but if I wasn't, I would be like super into making out with Sandra Katz for sure. He's like a hot, hot fucking dude with lots of. Um, I mean, makes me hot in the shorts because he's such a good fermentation guy. But um, <laughs> but he's just like so amazing. Uh, his um, his uh, when you read his book and the way that he says like how human how that the, the, about fermentation is a coevolutionary force with human beings. Yep. And um, and then the concept of, you know, the idea that like vessels were created be- probably because of fermentation and those allowed for food storage, which allowed for like other technological advancements, like ag- you know, hand in hand with agriculture. Um, I'm always um, uh, just like it's like this kind of like joycey and thunderclap of technology. It's like up there with that, you know, yep. so I just I, I kind of feel like uh, with um, uh fermentation what's exciting for me is that what you know the circle back to the beginning of our conversation it is provided me with the culture um in you know pun intended yeah. that uh that i was looking for you know like there's um there's uh there's kind of ritual there's care um there um there's uh, uh what's the word there is a um a way to do things and um and, and to respect the process is like important and to have reverence for the process to sit there. Like when you're making Koji and you're like, Holy shit. Um, somebody figured out how to 
like it's beyond me, like beyond my intelligence. I'll be honest with you. I wish I was a smarter guy, but yo, know, you have to understand your limitations. <laughs> but like to see that, to see like some that somebody in China and then later on in Japan was able to breed molds like they breed dogs, oh, yeah. to find characteristics in them. It's just like so intense and so amazing. And I have nothing but reverence and thankfulness and gratitude. And I think that's the thing that I love about my job now for mentors so much is just like every day I just feel an immense amount of gratitude for the products that are coming in, for the processes that were created, and then for the guests to come in and get to enjoy these things. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that 90% of Wisconsin's milk is made into cheese? And this is not just any milk. When Swiss, German, and Italian cheesemakers first settled into Wisconsin, they chose their new home because of the special terroir of the region. Its soil and water are nurtured by the goodness of glacial sediment, and those elements lend themselves to the very best milk. Today, Wisconsin produces 25% of all cheeses made in the U.S., and Wisconsin cheeses have won more awards than any other state or country in the world. How did they do it? Wisconsin cheesemakers combined their heritage and tradition with nonstop innovation. They were the first state to establish cheese grade standards and the first to require that every cheese plant be overseen by a licensed cheesemaker. Wisconsin is the only place outside of Europe where one can pursue an elite master cheesemaker certification. All of these impeccably high standards mean Wisconsin produces more than 48% of the nation's specialty cheese. Join Heritage Radio Network on Monday, November 11th for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. Our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame, who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe, taste and imbibe to your heart's content, and bid on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. Tickets available now at heritageradionetwork.org gala. To circle it back to the music thing, I feel like it is it is yeah. very interesting because I feel like there there is a very interesting culture and there is a very interesting like nomenclature that those of us who are I think yeah. you know, obsessed with fermentation and you know there are people yes. who are way down the rabbit hole right who are making their own koji or experimenting yes. with different strains and you know, culturing things that that historically you know in in Japan they never would have cultured beef with koji right but like people are doing right. that now. Um, and, yes. and doing all these very new things with it. And then there are people who are able to just like scratch the surface in the same way that someone could be like, ah, I kind of like punk and you go to a punk show, but you don't have to like, yeah, have like, you know, a mohawk with like egg whites in it that you're ironing. And like, you yeah, know, I'm a scenester though. See, right. Like I'm, I'm absolutely <laughs> sure. a scenester. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, Oh, you know, like I'll be reading. And I'm like, Oh, that, you know, the term for like a weight or a cover over right over your mash is called a follower. And then I'm like all excited that that's, that you're know, like, oh, like, so then I like drop it like in everything. So I go, oh, what kind, of, what kind of follower are you using on that? You know, <laughs> like it's just like a total douchebag, but like I just love it so much. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so good. And, and, and it's so exciting. I mean, for me, I, I really think that fermentation, I mean, you know, in the Middle Ages, people spent a lot of time and a lot of energy 
on trying to figure out if alchemy was like a real thing. And, yeah. And I really honestly believe they kind of were looking in the wrong place because fermentation yeah. really is alchemy. For sure. I mean, if you look at our logo for fermenter, the we we have an homage to that. So the N in the fermenter is a Capricorn N, um, which was a shorthand, shorthand in alchemy for um, fermentation. Oh, and then the, cool. the little kind of weird shape that's underneath the E that kind of looks like a sword of a chalice or something like that. Yep. That's the symbol for acetic acid. Nice. So we, we definitely uh, were thoughtful about the alchemy and fermentation kind of uh, roots there. And my buddy, John Wilson, who's a tattoo artist over at scapegoat tattoo made this unbelievably cool, like um, um, made these, this great painting and um, subsequent little small paintings and sculpture to put on our wall, this little art installation. That's like uh, um, this human with like, you know, these like, alchemy points and like pathogen yeah 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 so it's uh it's pretty cool um yeah man i think that what what having a restaurant and having a place that's focused on fermentation even like all that does is like it, it, it circles all these great people around you um i'm surrounded by people who are way smarter than me and can advise me on stuff but people who are like great artists the people who are um talented in all these ways I'm just surrounded by really, really talented people. And my, I think my best skill has always been that I'm able to like kind of corral that energy and kind of manage it in a way so that we get like a cohesive and good thing uh, outputted. Um, and, and then also I like, I just really like making, uh, you know, fermented stuff. So I'm doing good, man. That like, are there any ferments that you like have your eye on that you had, that isn't really part of the production right now? Um, Stuff that yeah, I want to start. I'm working on trying. I want to make some koji hot sauces. Um, nice. I've heard that um, adding koji to hot sauce really mellows the heat and brings out the fruit. So I want to try that. I haven't done that yet. Um, I also want to try using koji for making uh, teas. So like making like a basically like a fruit amazake, where instead of doing like a one to one with starch, it's like 20% koji to um, to the fruit. Uh, mm. Doing a 12 hour hot amazake with that, and then steeping it with like other ingredients so that we can like use up scraps because yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about doing that like making a scrap tea um so trying to kind of see where koji can help us in that realm and then besides that i really want to work on our cheeses right now most of our cheeses are bacteria based um which is great insofar as that that bacteria really breaks down carbohydrates and makes for a nice sour cheese but I'd like to have more cheese profiles available so I'm going to try to learn how to do more yeast-based uh, fermentations, um, which um, they master. Karen over there at Blue Heron Creamery, um, we're going to try to get together for uh, her to, like, teach me some of that stuff. She's out of uh, Canada, and she's just – I don't know if you've ever seen her stuff, but look it up. Awesome. Um, and then I guess my, yeah. other, my, my next question is, you know, you are – you know, you, you've chosen a place to open, and you call what you're doing Cascadian food. Um, yeah. based around the cascades and you know you are yeah. in an area that is has a, a wealth of opportunity for produce right for what uh, for produce i mean you have you have a lot yeah, yeah. you have a lot of availability so i guess i'm curious to know um you know if if people are hearing this and they're interested and they're like obsessed with your manifesto but they live in like san antonio uh, you know, do you, think, do you think that there's, there's something, something for them, them there, or do you think they oh, would need yeah. to move somewhere where they have more availability? No, 
No, they need to find out what they have here. You think that, yeah, we have a lot of produce that grows here, but we have short growing seasons here. Sure. Like super short. So like, so like right now we're going to like, just give you an example. We're going to fall. We're going to start seeing, seeing things dwindle off. We're going to start seeing a lot of storage crops. Yep. And then you're going to store, you have storage crops going for a while. And then we're going to, by the time we get to April, they're going to be trying to sell us all of the bolted brassicas and calling them robs, right? <laughs> so like, oh, we got, we got Brussels sprout rob right. and we got this rob, and, right? And there'll be nothing. And then we'll be like, God, we're going to, we're dying. There's nothing here, right? And, and, um, and then um, we, uh, then we finally some like wild, you know, some fiddlehead ferns and stuff start popping up. Yeah. And then, and then soon after, bring them in summer. But like we don't have like tell me like where's our citrus at? We don't sure. have any citrus up here. Yeah, we have totally. there's one one farm that we buy Meyer lemons from and they charge two dollars and sixty cents a lemon. So like we preserve them in salt and you know w- w- when we get to a certain point of the year where they drop down to maybe a buck fifty and we'll we'll preserve a bunch. But we don't have lemons. We don't have chocolate. We don't have yeah. tropical oils. We don't have a, a million things yeah. uh, up here. We have what we have, and so like it's just it's just like don't you know like just don't be discouraged and, and go look and figure out what the identity of your area is and be proud of it and, sh- and show it off. Well, I think, you know, I think, that's, I think that's, that's what smart. I'm... And, I, and I think that, you know, being in, being in the Northeast uh, and having spent a lot of my life trying to, to do, you know, to, to be similar to that. Right. I mean, like I, I haven't, yeah. been, I haven't been operating a restaurant with a manifesto around it, but you know, certainly like as we get to this time of year, I'm like looking at the last of the lettuces, right. That are coming from the CSA yeah. coming from any farms around here. And I'm like, all right, well, this is it for lettuce. Right. And then I've taken yeah. cabbage and I've got like five gallons of sauerkraut going because I'm going to be eating a lot of sauerkraut over the winter. Yeah, Cause that's, that's exactly how you do it. When you have a short growing season, you don't have things that when you do have plenitude, you can it, you dry it, yep. you you brine it, you ferment it, you do all that stuff, and that's how you have things. Yep. And so, like, don't tell the health department, but you know, like, <laughs> I canned a shit ton of tomatoes and peaches and a bunch of other things. Of course. And they're sitting in my basement in my house, you know, for us to pull out when we if we get desperate, you know. Yep. But huh, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. It's just going to sit in my house forever and never get used. No, no, they're just ever, you ever, just ever. use them at home when you have people over. I get it. Yes, I bathe in tomatoes. <laughs> So, yep. Just kidding, everybody. Yeah. Uh, well, but but I think that there's I think I mean, I think you bring up an interesting point, which is that in the you know, I, I think that in the near future, to a certain extent, like a lot of the, yeah. the government organizations need to get on board with this stuff and they need to figure out that, like, you know, sauerkraut oh. is not there's nothing wrong with fermenting sauerkraut. Let me like, can I talk about this for a second, please? pal? <laughs> so I'm going through I'm going through the process right now. So, um, we we have several health authorities that we deal with here. Oregon's health authority is one. Multnomah County Health uh, for our county is under OHA. Um, so we're directly under the Multnomah County Health Authority and then OHA. I um, and then we also have the Oregon Department of Agriculture, which is another governing body, right? And they're all very well meaning and they're all very well informed about some things, but they have some rules. So. When I talked to them first for Multnomah County Health and said, hey, guys, I want to make koji, miso, and tempeh in my place. And also, I do lactic acid fermentation, which they already knew about. But I would say at the same time that I, 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 I wrote like 400 pages of HACCP plans with the help of some very brilliant people. And I sent it in, and I said, here you go. And they said, um, um, lactic acid fermentation is uh, for sauerkraut, which is made out of cabbage. 
And I was like, oh, oh okay. Um, I, well, what about kimchi and what about steel pickles and what about this? And they're like, oh, yeah, okay. And, but it says here in your plan that you are, uh, you're, keeping, you're applying heat by keeping it in between, you know, uh, you know uh, like 72 to 82 degrees Fahrenheit. And I'm like, well, I'm like, that's like the room heater, man. Like, right. if, you know, if I don't put if – I, if I turn the heater on, is it my sautéing now? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like what are you talking about? So, so there was a lot of like kind of that kind of back and forth, which is very frustrating. And then when it came to the other things, they were like, well, you know, according to our – uh, rules you can't keep potentially hazardous foods in this case grain cooked grains and cooked beans uh at um the t- in the temperature danger zone for longer than four hours oh they're talking and, about and miso, you know miso, miso making. Yeah, yeah. yeah yeah miso is like you know three months to a year to yeah. years yeah. you know tempeh is like 36 hours koji is like 36 hours so you're like okay well yeah we're definitely doing that so so you know so you apply for a variance and and then the process there's not too terrible but it but it, it but it isn't like i feel so like you with that you pay some money and then oha looks at your processes and they say things like oh you need to get a ph meter or you need to get a water activity meter and you need to have calibration fluid on hand you need to have a HACCP, and you need to have these logs on the front and the other and that's all very fine and good but to get to that point took me so much work investigation and, and like asking questions that i feel like there's so many restaurants around the country that because of their health authorities like because it's kind of like there's like a wall there for whatever reason because it's not maybe because it's not part of like the initial literature like if you want to make special processes here's what you do that they just hide it yeah. right yep. so there's places that are making stuff and they're you know and hiding it in in like offices and and all sorts of stuff because they they just are afraid that they'll be told no and so what I'm what I'm trying to do is go through all the process, and I'm talking to both OHA and ODA, and because because if I do wholesale later, I'm gonna have to deal with the ODA, and just say like, I want to go through this process, document it, and whatever, and then what my what I want to do after that is go to every restaurant tour that I know who wants to talk to me about it and guide them through the process. So that we're all on the up and up. Nobody has to fucking hide anything. And then we can really, they can have the oversight that they want to make sure that we're making things safely. Right. But like, not just say no. And this is, to me, it's like, it's like telling teenagers to not have sex. Just fucking give them the information and the condoms and then they'll be okay. But if 100%. you tell them to just not have sex, you're going to have problems. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think pushing it underground actually will lead to more problems because then you just for sure you don't have people sharing information freely in the same way or you have them sharing it in a way that's like oh well i heard about this thing and you know i mean and and you look at stuff you know there are old texts that have stuff that's a mistake in there right i mean like for sure there's old you know there are old recipes for vinegar pickles and you're supposed to put alum in them to keep them crispy and like you really shouldn't do that yeah yeah, right it's really not but like when i when i Uh, just a teaspoon of asbestos yeah i mean you know and like so we do we have to remember that like we do learn things as a society as we move along um and yeah some of the old ways are better or coming back or whatever but some of the old ways were actually not that good yeah and bottom line is that the epa the usda and the fda all recognize koji miso and tempeh as a gras generally recognized as safe food yep and that and if and i have scientific paper after scientific paper that my good friend jordan is accessing from um he's a he's at the university of oregon and corvallis studying food safety and he's like, here's all these whole, here's all these papers that, that support 
that like when you when you create a medium like Koji or when you create a medium like Tempe, you're basically created a medium that is saying like, okay, everybody hop on and you hop on with a bunch of Rhizopus orzai or, or Oligosporus or, or Aspergillus, uh, depending on what you're making and say, here's this environment, here's you. And, you, and it outcompetes everything around it. Yeah. And besides that, like in Tempe, you know, you acidulate the beans to a place where you're not going to worry about botulism or anything. And it's completely, it's completely aerobic. So you're not worried about any of those things. Yeah. And so like, I know that, but it's like I need these guys to understand that this is okay and that and that it's not just like, you know, thing bad, it's like thing complicated and when you add this it it makes you know, and like if a guy in Indonesia can do it in a in a in a shop that doesn't have FRP panels and stainless steel and running like, water. you know, two hundred years ago, I think we're okay. Yeah. For sure. And, and, and also, I yeah. think there's a, there's a certain value in recognizing, although I think we do live in a complicated world where people do stuff because it's cool or hip or they think they're going to make it to make a fast buck, you know, yeah. that like the absolute worst thing, much worse than being fined by the health department for any restaurateur would be to murder sick or to kill somebody yeah. for food, right? Like, yeah, like, like we sure. have to understand that, like, we have to remember that we do live in a world where, like, you know, and, and especially in a small restaurant, right? Like, it, like corporations yeah. don't care in the same way, um, and, and a lot of these regulations, I think, are built for that. But, like, you have to see the people eating at your counter every single day. So if you make somebody yeah, sick, that's absolutely. a big deal. And you have to understand, too, like, you, you have to take care. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be oversight or right. that these people are stupid for being concerned because – like, for example, if I take my beans and I soak them at room temperature for, like, three days instead of soaking them overnight, or so, and I always soak my beans in under refrigeration now, mm. right? And mm -hmm. if, I, if I soak my beans for too long and then I say I put it on, say I'm cooking on an induction stove with a way too big of a pot and it takes six or seven or eight hours for me to get that thing up to a boil, yeah. right? I've created, a, I've created a situation where I have bacillus serious in there yeah. uh toxifying the environment and even though you bring it up past 144 where you're going to kill bacillus serious its toxins are in there and they will not be neutralized until you reach 250 degrees which boiling the beans will never reach right and so now you've created a situation where you're maybe not going to kill someone you could make somebody really ill who's immune compromised and you're definitely going to give someone diarrhea right and then you take that and you're like oh let me add let me make let me make tempeh out of this and then it's going to be just it's going to be gross and like you're going to have problems and whatever so you do have to cook your beans quickly and drive them fast, and then you have to cool them down quickly and all those kind of things to to avoid toxification. So I think I think just like understanding that, and I think that if there was programs in place that said, "Here's how you make these things and what you got to do," yep. that would that would be a hell of a lot more helpful than just being like, "Go figure it out for yourself." Like, why don't they have HACCP plans that are ready to go for tempeh? Yeah, right. Why do we have to? Why do I have to write them? I mean, I, like, I I applaud you for doing the hard work, and I think that what you're doing is yeah. really forging a you know you're forging a, a way so that other people can follow in your footsteps, and that I have. A I hope so, but you know, it could also be that they say no. <laughs> <laughs> and and then and then you'll have to do it only at home for your friends when they come over. No, then then I'll go open a open a ODA facility where they are okay with me doing it because yeah. they're if it's not a food, it's just so complicated. I can open a food. Um, processing plant, and they'll be like, "What are you making?" I'm making tempeh, and they're like, "Okay." And then you pay them 400 bucks, and then you make tempeh out of there, and you, and you put a label. They're like, "Make sure it's got a label," and then you make the label that they want, and then you sell it to people. And I can do that up the street, like I could do that up the street, and then I could like 
sell it and then walk it down over to my place here and then I could cook it and serve it to you and then everybody would be happy. But I can't do it in this place in the here. Where, I could yeah. do it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's just, yeah, it's wild. It's wild. Um, well, Crazy. I, I really appreciate it, Aaron. I appreciate you taking the time out yeah. of the day to chat with me. Um, yeah. It's, been, it's, it's fun. been really awesome. I can't wait to make it back out to Portland uh, to come and visit, and maybe we can do some fermentation and hang out and listen to some, you know, listen to some Smoke reggae. some doobies. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> that, that apparently is legal now out there. So, I mean, you know, yeah. unlike the East yeah, Coast could... where we don't quite have it yet, it's coming. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we're very advanced out here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, but the, uh, yeah. this has been really fun. Oh, I appreciate you so much for doing what you do, man. Thank you so much, and and I appreciate what you're doing. And uh, it's really, you know, the more power to you and to all of us that are trying to get this fermentation thing, you know, and pe- have people understand it and do it because I think it's a, I think it really is the, it's the ways of the yeah. past, but it really is a way forward for the future. The way of the past and the future. Exactly. Com. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right man. man. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to Feast Your Ears today. You can find more about my guest at farmspiritpdx.com and fermenterpdx.com. You can follow along on Instagram at farmspirit, at fermenterpdx, and at Chef Aaron Adams. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. One more cool thing I want to put on your radar is that our friends over at the Museum of Food and Drink have acquired the famous Ebony Magazine Test Kitchen, and they're working on their next and arguably one of the most important exhibits ever about food. It's the first major exhibition celebrating African-American contributions to American cuisine. It's called African American Making the Nation's Table. To donate and support it, please visit aa.mofad.org. You can reach out to me if you have any questions via email harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at The Food Baller. Talk to you next week. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.